WAGP, Beaufort Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. I'm Christine Foskey. My husband, Mike, and I own and operate Foskey Heating and Air. We want to thank all the listeners of this ministry for your support. We service all makes and models of HVAC equipment in Beaufort and Jasper County, and we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can be reached at 681-4328. That's 681-4328 or foskeyheatingandair.com. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line for our first-time listeners. For the next hour, we'll be taking questions that people have concerning their study of God's Word, maybe a particular passage you're struggling with, or an issue that you're looking for biblical guidance and counsel on as it relates to your family or life or ministry. If we can help, by God's grace, we will do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. The number is 525-1859, area code 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP. Net. When you call, you can go on the air live if you like, or you can simply dictate your question and remain totally anonymous. We're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor, uh, we've got a question from, I think, the first time we've ever had it from Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. Courtney would like to hear your opinion on K-12 to education, do you feel that as Christians we should avoid sending our children to public schools if at all possible? Uh, their local Christian school is wonderful but costs more than the tuition at the university down the road. Uh, she and her husband are not on board with uh, – or her husband, rather, is not on board with homeschooling but is willing to make big sacrifices to pay that tuition. The public schools in Lincoln are academically great. Most families do utilize them. They live in a community that made national news last fall for training teachers on gender fluidity, suggesting that teachers call students purple penguins rather than boys and girls. Our public schools get nearly 70% of our property taxes. I know that there are many Bible-believing Christian teachers in there. Do you think we should just wash our hands of these schools? Well, I'm grateful for the Bible-believing teachers and administrators who serve in various capacities in our, you know, government school system across the nation. It's a challenge for many of them, and indeed they can be salt and light and have an influence. The question is, does a child have that capability to really influence, you know, the children and even the teachers around them? And I would say very, very limited. 
In fact, uh, the child is less likely to be a missionary as he will be a mission field. And the government school system has radically changed, as has our culture. And the more depraved and the more godless our cultures become, you will see that reflected in the government school system. I offer a home education seminar because for a lot of people, it's a certain mystery about home education. They're convinced that they can't do it and uh, they can't pull it off. And of course, when my wife and I started home educating our children 30 years ago, it was a lot easier than it is today. Uh, excuse me, a lot harder than it is today. There are so many helps that are available that were not available during that time. Uh, just some wonderful things that uh, young parents have at their disposal to help them in this process. But, you know, I tell moms, look, there's a lot you've already taught your children already. You taught them how to speak. Uh, you taught them how to walk. You taught them how to use the potty. You taught them uh, their numbers, probably even before they get to kindergarten or maybe their letters. You've taught them so much. And yes, you may have holes in your education, but you'll learn along with that child. And I often tell people as a general principle today to put your children in K through 12 in the government school system and expect to have a godly product on the other end probably just is not going to happen. Why? Because there are so many biblical principles that are being violated. And now the turn of events in the last 12 months is huge. Of course, the Supreme Court decision to uh, officially approve homosexual marriage. And now with that, this whole transgender movement, as it's called, there's no such thing, obviously, in God's eyes. He made them male and female. Bruce Jenner, I don't care what he calls himself. He's a he because that's what God made him to be. He can call himself something else if he wants. And if you want to be politically correct, you can call him something else, but he's a, he always will be no matter what they do to his body or however they manipulate it. Uh, but the problem is you mentioned here in Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, the Midwest conservative America, uh, your school is hailed for teaching gender fluidity. And of course, uh, this is a huge problem. Uh, public schools all across America uh, this fall, most of them began initiating uh, gender neutral bathrooms. Of course, uh, recently in Arkansas, uh, there was a young boy who said he was now a girl and didn't want to use the gender neutral bathroom. He wanted to go to the girls bathroom in the girls locker room. Well, some dads came unglued, as did several hundred of the students who protested. So these are the kinds of issues that they're facing. And as this kind of worldview is hammered into the hearts of your kids, oh, yeah, let's not call them boys and girls. You know, let's call them, you know, purple penguins or whatever it is this teacher suggests. It's just silly, ridiculous. It's godless. It's a rejection of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And if there was ever a time to jettison the public education system, it's today. Um, there is some excellent material that's been put together by Ray Moore. Uh, Ray Moore is the head of a ministry called Exodus Ministries, which is a um, Christian school, homeschool movement, both sides, both the traditional Christian education plus the home education movement. And he kind of walks through why Christians should abandon it. 
Of course, now the whole core value uh, curriculum that's being introduced, this will be a real challenge for home educators because when the children, as they approach high school, take the SAT, there's a new set of questions that are coming out in 2016 that if you answer them as the way people historically have answered them, you will get it wrong. So Columbia, Columbus, Christopher Columbus is now a monster of sorts. And if you don't see him in that fashion, you're going to get it wrong. And so home educators are going to have to find out what some of the politically correct answers are. And that's okay. You know, they can answer them the way it needs to be answered to get it right on the test. And that's an education in and of itself. But these are some of the challenges that we are facing in America today, and a nation that has abandoned God. And so in the process, God is abandoning us. We are seeing Romans 1 lived out, fleshed out right before our eyes. And I would say to your husband, if he's got questions about home education, then listen to the homeschool seminar that's available online at searchthescriptures.org. There's no need to spend tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to send your kids to a Christian school if you can home educate them. And most people can. They just need the encouragement and the biblical motivation to do so. I appreciate that question from Lincoln. Let's go to the next question. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at uh, tvl at net. Gregory from Derry, New Hampshire writes, Hello, when defending my faith, nonbelievers and atheists always point in the Old Testament uh, to Deuteronomy, where God commanded genocide on the Canaanites. Can you help me make sense of those passages? Uh, Jack, that's, uh, uh, that's the question there. We had another one that we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, the one next to it is closely related, oh, Rick. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and read that as All well. Right. Uh, Jacqueline from Beaufort writes, I have had difficulty evangelizing to a person who questions consistency in the Bible. He questions the ruthless extermination of the Canaanite men, women, and especially children— and then Jesus' warning to those who would harm a child. Also, how do I convince the unsaved of God's love when confronted with these passages? So those are two closely connected questions, one here locally and one from New Hampshire. So let me see if I can respond. Uh, It's certainly a question that often comes up, the Canaanite uh, extermination. So let me go to a passage, uh, the one you reference here in Deuteronomy, or you reference the book, And it's found in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, God is giving instructions through Moses. This is um, right before Moses dies uh, there on the top of the mountain. And God takes him home. uh, And uh, he is giving kind of a final plea. Uh, Deuteronomy, as we call it in our English Bibles, uh, that title uh, is not inspired it is a um, title that comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. So our five books in the Torah, the titles come from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And Deuteros Nomos literally means second law. So this is the second giving of the law. In the Hebrew Bible, it's given a different title. title. It's just called the words. In fact, each of the first five books come from the first line of Scripture in each of those books. But... Here's the point is Moses is giving the law a second time, reaffirming what God had said earlier, offering more specific terms uh, on this occasion before his death. And he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, 
you shall offer it terms of peace and it shall come about if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you then it shall be that all the peoples who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you however if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you then you shall besiege it when the Lord your God gives it into your hand you shall strike only the men in it with the edge of the sword, all the men in it with the edge of the sword, only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you, you shall take as booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. So there's two sets of instructions that Moses gives to the people. One concerns the distant cities, and he, and he um, uh, when, you, when you read the whole passage very carefully, uh, it becomes obvious that in these distant cities, this is part of the land that was promised to Abraham, but these people are at a different place in their spirituality. Uh, the, the Arameans, as they are called, uh, they were a culture where they were not certainly as degenerate and depraved and upside down in their thinking as the six nations that he's getting ready to name in the Canaanite culture. And of course, if you remember in Genesis 24, when Isaac needs a bride, Abraham sends him to this culture, to the Aramean culture. So they're somewhat close as relatives um, in that. Abraham, of course, before God established the Jewish nation, has some roots back to these people. And these people are more responsive to general revelation. And so in the Aramean culture, there was a respect for the differences between male and female. And by the way, any culture that is degenerating, those distinctions are ignored. And so in the Aramean culture, when a woman married a man, she would follow the religious practices of her husband. Not so with the Canaanite women uh, that he's getting ready to name. That's another story. Case in point, of course, is Jezebel, who is a worshiper of Baal, and Ahab follows Jezebel instead of Jezebel following Ahab. So you're dealing with two groups of people. So with this one group of people, God says you can show compassion on the whole nation if they make terms of peace. He knows they're wicked people, but they're not as wicked as some of the nations that he's about ready to mention. If they don't give terms of peace, they're not so depraved that you have to wipe out the women and the children. Only when you come to verse 16, there's a turn here in Deuteronomy 20, only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the, uh, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their God, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So he's dealing now with a different group of people. And by the way, God had been compassionate to the people in the land. If you remember, God told Abraham that uh, it would be 400 years before the iniquity of the uh, of these people in this land would be fulfilled and God would bring destruction. So they had over 400 years to repent. But these people were so vicious, so vile. You know, they cooked their own babies and ate them. They sacrificed their children. 
uh, to Baal. It was just an absolutely wicked culture. And God knew that in one sense to, because God's looking with the long view by ending the lives of the women and the children amongst these in the broad term is Canaanites to describe all the people within the land who are uh, of this depraved nature. But even within that broad category, there is specificity that is added. Um, he's already mentioned these uh, six nations along with the Girgashites earlier in the book. In either case, by ending the lives of the children, God was really allowing them entrance into heaven. When you come to Revelation chapter 5, let me just turn there for just a moment. It's an interesting passage of scripture in Revelation, the fifth chapter and in the ninth verse, because it's a reminder to us of the mercy of God on children. And there are many ways to determine that children are unaccountable for their sin because of their lack of understanding. And one way is to just see who the inhabitants of heaven are. And we read in Revelation chapter 5, uh, the, 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 the people of God in heaven are singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for um, you were slain and you purchased for God with your own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom uh, in priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Uh, a little bit later in the seventh chapter and in the ninth verse, John, after he has spoken of 144,000 Jewish men from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel who are sealed, they're converted. We're not told the specifics of how their conversion unfolded. Maybe these were Jewish men who had heard evangelicals in the land year after year after year as they visited Israel. Uh, there are Jewish people who have a deep respect for evangelical Christians in Israel today. Number one, they know that we are the most pro-Israel people and that we drive, for the most part, uh, that pro-Israel spirit with our government but number two, um, they recognize that we have a, a respect for the nation of Israel. Not all evangelicals, but most evangelicals. Some are in the Reformed faith that deny the actual future for national Israel. But most evangelicals in America today see a future for the people of Israel. And they believe that just as God brought about the first coming of Messiah, through the people of Israel, he'll bring about the second coming of Messiah through the people of Israel. So you have these 144,000 Jewish men who are converted, who become evangelists to the world. And after these things, I looked after what things after these 12 are sealed and they become God's Billy Graham, so to speak around the world. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And of course there's this affirmation that God from every tribe and tongue and nation has purchased uh, a people through the blood of Christ. So how will some of these people be there? Well, some of them will be these six nations that are mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, the, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, uh, people in the Hivites, 
people who were purchased through the blood of Christ, little children who died, God knew that had those children, little children's lives not been taken, that they would have continued in the abominations of their parents. And God knew as well that the most compassionate thing to do, and because again, God looks with his eye on eternity, would be to take these women and children. Seems rather harsh, but will not the God of the universe do what's right, what's just? Will not the God of the earth do right? Uh, Abraham asked in, in Genesis 18. And of course, God's answer to Abraham was absolutely. In fact, God would have spared Sodom in that dialogue if there had just been 10 righteous people in the city, but there were not. That's how depraved Sodom and Gomorrah was. And that's really how depraved these people were. And, um, you know, God's ways are not our ways. The Bible says God's thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts above our thoughts, so are God's ways above our ways. Uh, Paul in um, Romans chapter 11 makes this statement, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how unfathomable are his ways. So God is infinitely wise. He knows what he is about and he knows what is best. And in his wisdom, he said, with this one group of people, here's how you can deal with it. Spare the women, spare the children. But with this other group of people, it's a different story. And here's how you need to deal with them. And we walk by faith in the wisdom and the justice of the, in the even the compassion of the infinite God that he is and uh, respond accordingly. What Jesus was referring to, by the way, in Matthew 18, which the second caller locally uh, had asked about, was causing someone to stumble, causing a child to fall into sin. That's an entirely different issue altogether. Good questions. I appreciate them both. And let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. One of your Neighbors from your old hometown of Worcester, Mass, uh, writes, Where in the Bible does it say that husbands are the priest of the home? Is he still priest if he doesn't go to church? Is that the same as head of the home? And does this allow him to, to decide when and with whom um, his wife joins with for prayer and Bible study? Well, it's a good question. Um, it does not say that the husband is the priest of the home. In fact, when God speaks of the priesthood of the believer, it's extended to both men and women alike. God spoke, of course, through Peter, and he's making some Old Testament quotations. And he says, but you, and it's plural, you could say in Southern English, you all. Uh, one of the limitations of modern English, unlike the Old English of the King James, is that you cannot discern whether the you is singular or plural. Uh, Old English makes that distinction. English since the 19th century has not, and context determines it. But it's obvious from the context, and it's explicitly clear in the Greek New Testament. You all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Under the Old Testament, only Jewish men from a certain tribe 
in a certain age group were considered to be priests. Under the new covenant, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female, irrespective of sex, we just read from the revelation of this great number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that God has made to be priests and part of his kingdom. So women are as much priests to God as are men in the day that we live in. And of course, uh, priesthood allowed a person to have a ministry. And so men and women alike have a ministry before the Lord. So horizontally, we have a ministry to other people, but vertically, we all have equal access. And so one of the um, catchphrases of the Protestant Reformation was what we refer to as the priesthood of the believer. And the priesthood of the believer was that dimension of Christianity that emphasized you don't have to go to a clergy person to be able to serve the living God or to approach the living God. Both our service horizontally and our approach to God vertically is now been obtained through the finished work of Christ on the cross. So with that said, that doesn't mean that there are not other male and female distinctions because clearly there are. And so men are called to be the head of their home. And you are to respect your husband, even if he's an unbeliever, as the head. And it may be that you're in a mixed marriage, either A, through disobedience, because you willfully went against what God clearly said, and you married an unbeliever, in which case you need to ask God for his forgiveness and his cleansing, because you can't unscramble eggs. Your marriage is now the will of God, and God expects you to stick in that marriage. It might be that you are there because uh, you got saved and your husband hasn't after you got married, in which case, again, you're in a mixed marriage. That's not through sin. That's just through conversion. But your husband, nonetheless, is still the head and you are to submit to his authority in the Lord. In other words, there are some parameters. If he asks you to do something that is contrary to what God has said in his word, then you ignore that headship respectfully nonetheless, but you still ignore it and you don't respond uh, to his call. So he asks you and he says, you know, wife, uh, Sunday, I don't want you to go to church anymore. Uh, I'm sick of uh, you're going to church and I don't want you to attend anymore. Then you respectfully disobey and you say, well, honey, I love you. I'll serve you. Um, I'll be your helpmate. But on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, God calls his people to gather. And this is one of those issues, like Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. So if you do that respectfully in a spirit-filled way, and especially if you come back from church and because of it, you're a better wife and a better helpmate, he'll, he'll appreciate that. Now, if you come back preaching at him every week, um, you, he, he might not respect it. And Peter gives us some counsel uh, in, in relationships to uh, a, a mixed marriage in First Peter 3, that the better way to win your husband is without a word rather than by preaching to him. So anyway, I, I hope that uh, begins to answer uh, this person from Worcester, Mass., who has uh, presented this question. Let's go to the next one. All right, another question from the Northeast. Kelvin and Trina from Shelburne, New Hampshire, write, uh, we have been in discussion with some five-point Calvinists up here in the Northeast, I would appreciate some direction. Our family would love for you and yours to come visit the upper U.S. and preach for us sometime. Uh, to the point at hand, I know if I can show them from Scripture that their total depravity 
really inability, has cracks, then their structure is unstable. I've enjoyed your teaching on soteriology alongside your Roman study. And with this in mind, here are my two questions. One, how would you break down to a Calvinist, uh, Ephesians 2.1, they take that as, as so dead in sin you cannot make any decision, you can't even come by faith. They say dead people are unable to respond to the Spirit, being a natural man. And secondly, how they interpret Romans 2, 12 to 16 as being Gentile Christians. Again, when you want to come up to New Hampshire, you have all the room in the world for you all and right. your wife. Well, it's a good question, and there are aspects of Calvinistic uh, soteriology. Soto is the Greek word to save. And so when we speak of soteriology, we're speaking of the doctrine of salvation, and it's an important doctrine. And there are aspects of Calvinistic soteriology that are actually correct and biblically true. There are other aspects that I'm not sure even John Calvin believed. Uh, When you look at TULIP, which is kind of a summary of uh, the five points of Calvinism, the first letter T stands for total depravity. Does the Bible teach total depravity? And the, the biblical answer is yes. Um, they're correct in affirming the doctrine of total depravity in Ephesians. And the doctrine, by the way, of total depravity is not that man is as bad as he can be, but it's affirming that man is as bad off as he can be, that all of man has been tainted by sin. And when Paul in Romans 3 strings together a number of Old Testament passages in describing man's depravity, he said, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. You say, well, gee, I I meet a lot of unsaved people who do good. But remember, Jesus said, who's good but God alone? Uh, His definition of good, why do you call me good teacher? You don't really recognize who I am. Your definition of good is different from my definition of good. Jesus was actually affirming his deity because the rich young ruler didn't really acknowledge Jesus as Lord and who he really was, that God's definition of good is perfection. And in that sense, he will say, for all have sinned a few verses later, and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us seek God as we ought. Our throat, our tongues, our lips, our feet, our eyes, every aspect of man has been tainted by sin. And again, this is what we usually refer to as total depravity. And so man cannot, uh, on his own, and by his own efforts, come to God with some kind of an offering to appease God, because our righteousness is his filthy rags. It falls short. And so in Ephesians 2, when Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So they're correct. Dead men cannot respond. If you're over a coffin and you say to your loved ones, fix your tie, he has no capability. And so it is with someone who's dead in his trespasses and sins. Unless God takes the initiative, there's no hope for us. But the good news is that God does take the initiative. Now, the difference between the Calvinist and the Arminian, at least in terms of 
with whom God takes the initiative is that the Calvinist doesn't see God's initiative being extended to all men, but just to a certain select group of people where I would say, no, God's God's initiative is towards the world. When the Bible speaks of the fact that God so loved the world, he really means the world, not just those who will repent and believe. And so one, one of the, um, letters in TULIP, again, which summarizes Calvinistic uh, soteriology, T-U-L, L stands for limited atonement, or what some refer to as a particular atonement, that the atonement, the death of Christ, was not for all men, but simply limited to those who would ultimately believe. And their argument is that if Jesus died for all and made a payment for all, that you must ascribe to universalism. Uh, No, 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 Uh, not at all. In fact, the same death that saves me because I've come by grace through faith in Christ is the same death that condemns other people. No one in the final judgment will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to come, it wouldn't have made any difference because you made no provision for me. And because you made no provision for me, Um, It just seems unjust on your behalf that you can condemn me. And the fact is, is that God made a provision for all. Uh, The death of Christ is sufficient to save anyone because he did die for all, but it's only efficient for those who will truly believe. Um, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 says, but false prophets also arose among the people. Speaking of the Old Testament error, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So what plagued Israel in the Old Testament will plague the body of Christ in the New Testament. There have always been false teachers who, he says, will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The master bought even the false teacher. And he's describing these people who... Um, are totally depraved, people who are sealed in their unbelief, people who had the truth, who came as the book of Jude uh, describes. And in Jude, by the way, which is just one chapter in Second Peter 2, are really parallel passages. Some say, well, one copied the other. No, they didn't copy the other. Um, the Spirit of God who inspired Peter also inspired Jude and gave them a lot of similar ideas because they're dealing with a similar topic. And of course, he's describing what we call an apostate. An apostate is a little bit different from your average unbeliever. An apostate is a a man, a woman, who's come to the edge of the Christian faith, so to speak. They have heard the message of salvation. They've been exposed to the truth of the gospel, but they turned their back on it and they rejected it. And so because they rejected God, God rejected them. And of course, uh, Peter says this is a terrible uh, place to come to spiritually for if after they, these false teachers, have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they're again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So he's describing people who've 
who've come to a knowledge of the truth, they know salvation and that knowledge of the truth has positively influenced them. But just because you can be salted and lighted with the righteousness of the body of Christ and its message is not the same as being converted. There's a lot of people who come into evangelical churches who apparently clean up on the outside because of the influence, the godly influence of of believers, but they're not born again on the inside. And if they don't respond, there comes a point where the patience of God is exhausted. There comes a point where nothing will happen and um, except for God to ultimately reject them. And so they're like the pig that is washed and the, uh, you know, cleaned up on the outside, but because he has a pig's nature on the inside, just like a dog has a dog's nature on its inside, they do disgusting things and they go back to those disgusting things in the end. We're going to play a spot on the book of Daniel here in just a moment. I'm getting ready to begin a brand new series on the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is the key to prophetic revelation in the Bible. If you want to understand uh, what the Bible says about the last of the last days, if you want to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, then you really have to understand the book of Daniel because Daniel is the key to prophetic revelation. If you've had a lot of questions over the Olivet Discourse, which is really the most extensive sermon Jesus gave on the last of the last days, uh, you'll find it in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Um, A lot of the mystery is taken out and removed when you come to an understanding of the book of Daniel. So if you can know Daniel, and see how it applies. And let me just say, he's not only the prophet of the end time, he's the prophet of the meantime. He tells us how to live in light of the last days. And if you can understand Daniel, it will change your life and will open up the prophetic portions of the New Testament. Taken captive, he was found to be exceptional and assigned to the royal court. Although able to partake of the king's finest, Daniel never compromised. Those around him hated his commitment to his God. They had him thrown into a furnace, then into a lion's den. Serving different administrations, he never wavered. Over 60 years, he saw one king turn into a wild beast. For another, he read the handwriting on the wall. He interpreted dreams and visions and gave amazing prophecies that are still unfolding today. Perhaps his most amazing prediction was the day of Jesus' triumphal Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem. You cannot understand the revelation until you understand Daniel. Join the people of Community Bible Church as they come to know the man, Daniel, Sundays in Buford at 638 Paris Island Gateway at 915 and 11 a.m. and at 11 in Bluffton in the Bridge Center across from Moss Creek. Details online at communitybiblechurch.us. All right, I invite you out for this new series beginning this Sunday, and I hope you can join us for it. Well, we're out of time for today. We're so glad you could be with us for the Bible line. And God willing, we'll be here again next week on Tuesday uh, in the interim. If you have questions, you can certainly email them to Rick here at the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net, and he'll bring them up for us next week. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.
of your belief in Him, you will not be disappointed. You will share His holiness. One of God's promises to you.
With SRN News, I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. Two students have been killed and three other people seriously injured after a school bus rolled off a Houston freeway overpass. A statement from the Houston Independent School District says a girl died at the scene this morning. Another student died at a hospital. No classes today at Delta State University in Mississippi, a day after the fatal shooting of a professor there. The school's president says students, faculty, and staff are invited to campus to attend a vigil this evening for history professor Ethan Schmidt. Authorities believe he was shot and killed by Shannon Lamb, an instructor at the college. Lamb was also suspected in the shooting death of his girlfriend. The governor of the southwestern province of Turkey says search and rescue operations at the site of the sinking of a boat overloaded with migrants has ended. The Turkish Coast Guard rescued a total of 249 people. 22 people died. This is SRN News.
life before you I was a flame burning down I was burning It's like 